I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, The Blues Brothers. Casey? Yeah. We're getting the band back together. Oh! Uh, Holy cats! Is, I was... didn't even make that connection! <laughs> yeah. It's like the three horsemen of the apocalypse in here. So, yes, this month we are talking about 1980s The Blues Brothers, directed by John Landis, who also directed National Lampoon's Animal House, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, and Coming to America, and co-written by Landis with Dan Aykroyd, who also co-wrote Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, Spies Like Us, Dragnet, and Coneheads. And Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> and Nothing But Trouble. Never forget Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to put up the worst thing that these people ever did on this list. So yes, for, for, um, for Dan Aykroyd, that's Nothing But Trouble. But the worst thing John Landis made was Max Landis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you already yeah. heard... Yeah, <laughs> jeez. You already heard his voice at, at the top of the show, and he is back. Speaking of getting the band back together, we are joined by a returning guest coming back after way too long of an absence. He is the station manager and engineer of KTQA 95.3 FM in Tacoma and former Illinois resident, Mr. Sam Mulvey. Welcome back, Sam. How's it going? Sam, I, it is so good to have you back in yeah, the studio it is. again. It is, uh, I, it, it's been not all. I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been talking uh, with, with you guys, but uh, it's been a long time for you know being in front of the microphone. I'm not really a talk show host anymore. I, I, I spend more of my time uh, behind the scenes these days. I'm doing more, uh, more engineering and more uh, uh, like computer bullshit than I've done. In 15 years. So it's it's really... And, and I tell you what, uh, you get backlogged. I, 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 start my, I, I monologue at my cat now. Yeah, uh, yeah my cat has... We, we has, do give you the ability to purge if yeah. you need to purge. Uh, this yeah. is happening, yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, like my, my cat has heard probably, I don't know, 60 minutes of material at this point. That just, yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, it's great to be back, and it's great to be talking to new microphone, especially with uh, with you two. Yeah. And we're talking about something I know you're very passionate about, Sam. Oh boy, we're talking about the Blues Brothers. So, if you had to synopsize this movie in like a paragraph or two, what is the Blues Brothers all about? <sighs> uh, two nerds make a movie about their favorite musical genre uh, in a cartoon land. It is very wow. cartoony. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I mean, okay, I kind of know why you had me on. And the minute we start talking about it, I noticed my accent like perverted <laughs> by like 20 years. Um, there's there's something to be said. Is this the is this the Ur Chicago movie? Is it Blues Brothers or is it Ferris Bueller's Day Off? That's I would the, say the question. this is the Chicago movie because... Is, yeah. There are two images of Chicago in both of those movies. And I think Ferris Bueller, I love the movie to death, but that is tourist Chicago. <laughs> that is yeah. shiny skyscrapers and spotless suburbs. Well, yeah, the most most of the Ferris Bueller movie takes place in the 
uh, Chicago like mega suburbs, you know, where the, the suburbs like literally just go on for literally forever. You're stuck. You cannot leave. And that's why those those like those particular movies take on that particular existentialist quality. This is the world they live in and they cannot escape it unless they go downtown. Yeah. And that's the only place like the only place you can go if you want to get out of this completely stultifying like high school thing where Chicago actually seems like a living and breathing place in, in blues brothers. This is, uh, this is blues brothers is very much the first is the earth Chicago movie. Hmm. You know, hmm. it's like LA and New York, they get entire genres right. of movies that take, right. Yeah, n- nobody wants to be from Chicago. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. So we get one movie well, and then two, but uh, you know, I mean, well, all those big, like, teen drama movies of the 80s and John 90s. Hughes, John Hughes. Those are the words. The John Hughes John movies. Hughes. Were gonna, they, all, they all take place in in Chicago suburbs because that's what suburbs are like. It could have been anywhere in America that wasn't a big city and wasn't a farm and in the really, 80s. It's, right. it's yeah. also rich suburbs yes. that you see in a lot of them, except for, except for Pretty in Pink. Those are very much north side suburbs. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. You look at the house in Home Alone. You look at the house in... Planes, trains, and automobiles. You look at the house in Ferris Bueller. These guys are like mob lawyers of money. That's a kind of <laughs> that's how rich these guys are. Yeah. Um, that is not that is not the economic stratosphere that you are in in the Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers is you see a lot of industrial areas. You see a lot of working class, working poor communities of color. There's a lot of uh, tires and newspapers on the ground. <laughs> um, a lot of wet pavement. Um, you're underneath or, a lot of L train tracks. Or alternately, you are somewhere in the sticks, and there's a country bar that appears absolutely out of nowhere. Right. You know, like it's like a, like kind of a magical fantasy land. But all, all the cities. Uh, the, the thing is, like, all right. I have to admit, like, I one of my bits, one of the things that people around here know me about is Sam's the guy from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. that's where he's from. But at this point, I moved away from Chicago, and. 2000 uh in 1999 sorry in 1999 i and i'm i'm and it's 2022 now i've now lived away from chicago than i ever lived in right but the thing is i was there as a kid and as a young adult way closer to the time of this movie than now and and you know everybody keeps like yeah but you're still from chicago and like yeah but you know but but i'm not from there anymore i've lived i've lived in as an adult in tacoma longer than i ever lived in chicago but then i go back and i know where everything is and i can see see things in this scene and i'm I'm looking at them i go yeah almost all the calumet city uh harvey uh like all these places are south side places you know um but it is a variation of the the immigrant story that you go back to chicago and you're to tacoma for chicago but you come here and you're to chicago for tacoma well that's the thing is like yeah (laughs) yeah exactly uh like i go home and 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 i spend some time back home and yeah we do call it back home and uh uh and then I come back here, and everybody's making fun, like like just talking shit about me, like for a week because I sound completely different <laughs> to them now, because uh, all my vowels are gone. Somebody stole my vowels, and yeah, like I go home and I'm there a week, and it's almost like I never left, except the traffic is worse now, because <laughs> that that's that happens. That, that's <laughs> happened everywhere. But the like the. Chicago has places, maybe not so much anymore, but like that very first scene, like the little cut before you even see any character. Like the only thing that like this is uh, uh, 
So I watched this with uh, Warbington. I, I watched him with that, and he he pointed out, and 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 like I was kind of seeing it too. That first scene before you meet the, any of the characters in in the uh, in the movie, all you're missing is Evangelist soundtrack, yeah. and it's Blade Runner. <laughs> yes. yes, and that's just Cicero. Just like just that's flames in the air, yeah. smoky. Yes, that that was back when we still had a steel industry in this country. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's not a, a vision of Chicago that you're going to get in most movies because they want it to be more like a travelogue. We want to see pretty places. And you don't get a lot of pretty places. You, the thing that I think really stands out in this movie is that it very rarely feels like you're on a set watching right. the Blues Brothers. It feels like you're in practical locations. The bars feel like bars. There's a kind of worn down, lived in feel that you get from it being a place that somebody's been using for like 20, 30 years versus a place that you built brand new and you paint it and scuff it up to look used. Right. And like the one place that feels like a set in this movie is the Shea Paul Fancy Pants Restaurant. (laughs) Right. But when you go into like Ray's Music Exchange, you go into uh, Bob's Country Bunker, you go into the Orphanage, there's a kind of creaky, polished down by hands and feet, touching it for decades, uh, worn down, crumbled, kind of lived in organic feel yeah. that gives this movie a real authenticity that I don't think a lot of Chicago movies otherwise has. And it's a weird way, kind of like Ghostbusters. I think Ghostbusters is in a lot of ways the the New York movie because Ghostbusters 2 is tourist New York. Right. Ghostbusters 1 is grimy as fuck. Like, when the Ghostbusters go on their first job and the Ecto-1 comes screaming out of the firehouse, they drive past an abandoned fucking burnt-out car. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the sort of little bits that you don't always put in movies like this. And it really is, at its core, also a slobs versus snobs mentality. Of course it is. That you are kind of dealing with the establishment that when they go into that restaurant, immediately a snooty guy complains to the maitre d' about those. We would be moved away from those gentlemen. <laughs> they they smell. They smell badly. That, that was that was such a great little moment to add. And when I was thinking about it, it's like, well, just imagine how they do smell. They probably smell like booze. B.O. and cigarettes. They right. probably smell fucking terrible. These guys own one suit piece <laughs> yes. that they wear throughout the entire movie. Right. Occasionally, it will reconstitute itself. They will be caught in explosions and building collapses, but they'll just like stand up in the rubble, brush, brush all the brick dust off of themselves, and they're like Wiley e. Coyote. Um, they get trashed a lot, but that's a one article of clothing that they all own. They own a three-piece suit, the classic, you know, skinny tie, white shirt, black pants, black jacket, black hat, sunglasses, and white socks. Right. And they are wearing that suit for what seems to be the 11 days that they need right. to to accomplish their mission. We should talk a little bit about that because I think this is a movie where the plot is hyper simple, but the spectacle and the world building is remarkably weirdly complex. They are on a mission from God. <laughs> mission from God. Mission from God. Pro- no, don't. One of the just <laughs> just one of the best running jokes that's ever been done in in a movie. But what's fascinating is they spend a big chunk of this movie getting their band back together. That yeah. um, Jake Blues, played by J- uh, John Belushi, has just gotten out of three years in prison. He got out for good behavior, and him and his brother Elwood, played by Dan Aykroyd. 
are trying to get a band back together and they don't explain to the band even why they're trying to why they're trying to reunite and put on a big show yeah. because I don't know. It's weird. It would be the easiest way for them to tug at the heartstrings of these people that they have wronged and owe money to <laughs> and who have all spread to the wind and gotten what Elwood refers to as straight jobs. Right. Where even working at a soul food restaurant or being a maitre d' at a restaurant are considered high paying gigs to these guys. Yeah. Because everyone, these guys are poor. They are poor. And they're poor in the way that they are living through pocket change 90% of the time. But occasionally, I imagine these guys are rich for three days. They lose it all and they're back to going <laughs> through pocket change. Well, okay. So. This movie kind of speaks to me on a couple levels because one, it takes place in 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 magical Chicago, uh, magical realism Chicago, really, frankly. Uh, and the other thing is, it's a movie about working musicians. And my dad was a working musician in this time period in Chicago with me around. <laughs> I was two when this movie came out. I was one when it was being made, and. The a lot of the aspects of it, like these guys, yeah, they got a he's gonna, he, he's making a lot of money at this restaurant as a maitre d. I don't think he's gonna, I don't think he's gonna want to play. Yeah, that tracks. That completely, like that was literally narratives happening around me when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, well, no, you got you got a straight jump or whatever. And, then, and my dad would be that guy sometimes because always roofing. Mm-hmm. And that was like that was the straight job, and and the things like you know very beginning of the uh, of the movie, where um, you know they talk about the bluesmobile that this is not the original bluesmobile. <laughs> there was a there was a bluesmobile before this bluesmobile that was a, a Cadillac, and what happened to it? He traded it. He traded it for a microphone. For a microphone. <laughs> Fair trade. Well, as you say, oh, that makes sense. Makes sense. That, yeah. That's what I love that these guys, the dynamic between the two of them, yeah. is that they do bicker and snap at each other sometimes, but they drop it almost right away. Yeah. That there is a sort of love and mutual support that they have for each other, where one of them will do something fucking insane. The other one might get very briefly upset or annoyed with them. But mm-hmm. then just drops it and starts supporting them. <laughs> right. He goes with yeah. it right away. Like, I'm mad at you that you're running away from the cops. I just got out of jail. You want to send me back to the joint? <laughs> then pretty soon, well, we're just in it now. There's, yeah. there's, no, there's nothing changing it. And then there's this kind of nonchalant, deadpan reaction to it. These guys don't freak out. No. And they just casually break the law constantly not just break the law (laughs) constantly they eviscerate the law yeah i watched this my wife has never seen this before and when i was watching it the last time she came down for the last 15 minutes of of it oh my god and she goes and there was lots of hut 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 lots of uh swat teams coming in and she was like so what's the plot here and i'm like Oh, he was like he broke parole. And I was like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much what happened. Like he broke parole. That's why there's all this all these insane people it's chasing trying him. Trying to pay the rent yeah. at that point. That's 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 the plot. Yeah. So so essentially, these guys grew up in an orphanage, yeah. a Catholic orphanage, and when they get out of prison, they go to visit the penguin, uh, Sister Mary Stigmata, <laughs> yeah. who is a supernatural being. Yeah. Who's That's not, I love not a person. Yeah, like I love that they just pull all this imagery from like the fucking Exorcist. Yeah, with her is that they go into the orphanage and there's this stairway that looks about three miles tall, and they 
slowly climbs. With a crucifix next to it that might be four miles tall. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's hanging at this bizarre angle. Everything from this point going up the staircase is, is filmed at Dutch angles. The lighting is weird. So you have the straight uh, staircase and the sort of horizontal lines going upward. But the lighting is going through the railing and the window and shooting these diagonal lines clashing with the horizontal lines. So it gives you this weird M.C. Escher-esque, I don't know which way is up kind of feeling. (laughs) It's disorienting and dizzy. And at the top of the stairs, hanging at this bizarre diagonal angle, is the creepiest motherfucking crucified Jesus (laughs) that you will ever see. He is bloody. His eyes are rolled up in the back of his head like a corpse. (laughs) And as they get to the top of the stairs, suddenly... The door closes behind them like a ghost has just trapped them. And I love, this is the thing that I love that this movie does. This movie is fucking bonkers. It is crazy. It will frequently break into Looney Tunes, sort of Chuck Jones Roadrunner physics. Then it will counter all of this with this like quiet, atmospheric scene that just lets you live in this moment. Right. And the joke will be how quietly and kind of nonchalant isn't really the one I'd have, but just kind of this kind of like, huh reaction to it that a lot of movies would throw in a catchphrase. They would throw in a joke or a quip, but then like when that door closes behind them, it goes dunk and they just kind of slowly turn around. Okay. Well, and it's also great because you get a, this is them doing their origin story without using too many words, right? Yeah. You get the sense with the looks on their faces that they are transported back to being 10 years old and having to make that trip for the 400th time because yeah. they, they pissed dirt, they pissed off the penguin. Have a seat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and the, there's children's desks. And the only place to sit is, is, is the children's desks and they, and Jake and Elle would go to sit at the desks and they're like, okay, we're here. And they both sit at them like they're eight. Yeah. Cause there's no the... other way to sit in those damn desks. You were in the principal's office. And, but then just, I'd like to see your smiling faces or something right. like that. And so they both scoot him up <laughs> differently. I, I totally forgot that the, uh, and that's where they set up like, Oh, they need $5,000 to save the orphanage. Now we have got a movie, right? Yeah. Got a movie. Um, and, uh, that's the, the 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 gag that I did not remember is because she's a nun, of course, because you've got to play out all the things that a nun would do. She takes out a ruler yeah. because they start swearing and then she's hitting them. And as she's hitting them, they're swearing. So she's hitting them again and they do this. And then she breaks the ruler because she's hit them so many times. It's so good. And then gets out a riding yes. crop. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It is so the jokes are so fucking funny. They're so good. And I love that Jake, when he's trying to run away from getting whacked, is getting, he can't even get out of this tiny desk. So he falls backwards down the stairs, still attached to the desk, which breaks away on top of him. And he just, it kind of escapes from it. You see that, you know, okay, they're doing that because it's John Belushi and that's what he's known for at this point. Right. But it still, it still works. Yeah. Like they, they, they worked real hard to make that work and kind of real obviously because everything in this movie is obvious. Uh, this is not a this is not a movie that that tried that hides anything really. No, not and, at all. And it's beautiful for it. It's a yeah. It is a, it's a comedy musical, and it's all an excuse. It really is all an excuse to hang some hilarious gags on getting like the most classic 
sort of blues and rock and roll performers that they could possibly assemble for one movie. It this, was just an excuse to make uh, to hang to hang a, f- a framework on that. This is like a Mount Rushmore of R&B blues artists. I mean, in this movie, you have James Brown, Aretha Franklin, uh, Ray Charles, Cab Calloway, John Lee Hooker. All of them have songs in the movie. Yeah. And it's crazy because I think that so much of this movie is a passion project because it is so utterly specific. It's a movie that shouldn't exist. It is a car chase movie with sort of a slobs versus snobs. We got to save the orphanage from the the tax assessor who's going to, we have to get a $5,000 thing. We got to get the band back together to put on a big show. Uh, we're running from the cops. We have a rogues gallery that includes the uh, rival country Western band, yeah. a gang of neo-Nazis, <laughs> and literally every fucking cop in the state of Illinois. <laughs> and all the while popping in and out of the story, you have Carrie Fisher, without explanation, trying to kill them with like okay, military so arsenal. In my mind, <laughs> yeah. I always thought that there was an eight, like a buildup with Carrie Fisher's character of like, artillery or or or, or 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 like it would start with like a like a gun or, or you know like i in my head there's always a build up to the kind of munitions that carrie fisher's character was using no carrie fisher starts with a <laughs> missile launcher yeah. yeah just starts at 11 just yeah. here you go that she she pulls up as they are getting to elwood's flop house that he lives at transients welcome yeah she just pulls up in this this big long car and is watching them with binoculars and you're like what the fuck is going on here and she gets him in the crosshairs this fucking missile launcher she blows the front like foyer out of this like flophouse hotel bricks and rubble fall on these guys she speeds off squealing into the night and they just get them get up dust themselves off and enter the hotel. <laughs> and that's what you're talking about, because, you know, the, you have this explosion cartoony thing, and then they go into uh, uh, in, into Elwood's room, which is, uh, you know... Uh, it's like a big closet. It's a closet, and uh, the constant CTA, uh, you know, constant L trains. <laughs> Can't confirm. What does he say? He says, uh, does that train come back here a lot? So often you won't even notice it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's literally always. But it's this kind of... And they just... He makes toast, which is a thing. On a uh, hot plate with a coat hanger. On a hot, on a hot plate with a coat <laughs> hanger. And they listen to, you know, uh, I forget which one, but it's, it's definitely, a, I think it's a Deca 78. And um, and it's this really quiet scene. Actually, a really super sweet scene that you, that helps put a, sort of put a button on their, their, their relationship with each yeah. other, right? Is that John Belushi, he's like, oh, here's the whiskey. And so John Belushi takes a drink and he's getting tired and, uh, they're trying to talk to each other and how to work out what they're going to do. Um, and he uh, turns back and then John Belushi is asleep and he's like, hey, you louse, that's my bed. And then Elwood just has that moment where he stops and then just like finds himself to get like a comfortable seat. And I just love that sweet little thing of like, he's not going to be an asshole and hey. roust him out of bed. He loves him. He loves him and he, he pulls a blanket up over him yeah. and, and sleeps in a chair. And, and then it's... in the next scene, Carrie Fisher explodes the entire building with everyone <laughs> yes. inside and many, many pol- police officers as well. <laughs> and everyone's fine. The entire room collapses around them, yeah. falls all the way to the ground, yeah. and they just get up, notice that it's time to go to work, and leave. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I love, is that the, you have, you have side-by-side side this moment that is incredibly sweet and quiet and understated, and this scene that is just pure Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. And I think those things working together 
actually are what makes this movie special. Because it would be easy to just be the spectacle. And this movie has spectacle. Right. And I think that's what, what really has it is that you have this crazy combination of things that shouldn't work, but somehow do. Um, it's an R-rated comedy based on a Saturday Night Live musical sketch. A- well, it's a band that they put together while they were working on Saturday Night Live because they were both fans of this kind of... like. This is nerdery. Yeah. We are experiencing nerdery right. in the form of this musical comedy movie. Yeah. And that's one of the weirdest things about it that that I tend to forget through all the Chicago-ness of it is uh, is that this is really just nerds nerding out about music. That's that's what's so great about it is yeah. that you have the the ticking clock. They've got to they've got to get the money in a certain time, and of course the penguin won't have them steal. No, so they have to do this the right way because they are on indeed a mission from God. A mission from God. And I, I, I can't. I gotta stop doing that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what I really enjoy about this movie is just how committed it is to being such an utterly specific piece of media. Yeah. That every piece about this is a specific thing that the people who made this movie loves. Mm-hmm. And throwing them all together into something that should be a mess. But somehow it's just, it's utterly brilliant. It's funny. It's one of the most quotable fucking movies that I have ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's up there with Spinal Tap, sort of on that level. It's just sort of this uh, per- comedy perfection. A movie perfection. I have already quoted in this conversation, <laughs> in fact. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, oh boy. Uh, I, that, there's also something that I don't mean to, I definitely don't want to overtalk you, Sam. There's also something that I find that is really great is we, when usually you are, are measuring the effectiveness and the quality of a documentary, um, I've heard this rubric being, being thrown out, which is like, would this make you care about the subject if you didn't know anything about it before? Yeah. And what I love about this movie is, is that if you are indifferent to blues or R&B as a thing, you, from the first, from the time they go to the church, basically, you're like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah. You're like, it's so, this, it's not, it's not just. Yes, it's the spectacle that they create around this this tiny, the simple little story. But it's also just like the people composing the music and performing the music and the choreographers and how they set everything up is just like such a fun, weird, bonkers musical um, that it's you can't. It wins you over. It wins you over. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was really uh, an outstanding element of this movie is that. When you're first watching it, the first credit that appears on screen, there's a universal picture, but the next credit is not a producer. It's not the name of an actor. It's not the director's name. It's music supervised and conducted by Ira Newborn. Right. And right after that is choreographer Carlton Johnson, that the very first credits of this movie are about the music. And that right there tells me what the priorities of the filmmakers are, that this is a love letter to this music. It's a love letter to Chicago. It's a love letter to car chases and crashes. I think for a long time, I think for 19 years, this movie had the record for any production for the number of cars destroyed in a movie. (laughs) And there are so many. 103 cars (laughs) are destroyed in the course of this movie. Yeah. Again, it's all of these different things and it's all of these things at once. It's this beautifully thrown together thing that because of the stunts, because of the choreography, has to be just incredibly planned, but it still feels like a movie that's ad-libbed. 
Right. Right. Yeah. How does a movie with this many parts that would require such intricate planning and execution still feel like a bunch of friends fucking around in front of a camera? Because you have musicians who are friends with speaking lines. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a big part of it is that you've got a lot of people who are part of this cast and who are integral to the to the to the movie for the movie to function who are not actors, who are mm-hmm. amazing musicians. That's what that's what they're known for. That's how they got to be a part of this. They're not actors. You can tell they're not actors. Yes, and you can. And it doesn't can. fucking matter. <laughs> no. Not for y- a y- second. Yes, you can totally tell the yeah. non-actors are and not it, acting. It yes. works <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I love the Blues Brothers band. I love the weird jobs, the fact that Murph and the Magic Tones, that half of the <laughs> band is like working out of like this room in a Holiday Inn and... They they have speakers and things with this kind of like weird like what is that like the weird red fur on it <laughs> yeah it's to sort of like upholstered their amps and their instruments and it's just the most fuchsia and bright red kind of lounge act that they've got going on and at a time at a time when that was definitely a thing that was happening in a Holiday Inn yeah that you're gonna be. <laughs> You're going to be entertaining or at least filling the silence of a room full of like insurance claims adjusters <laughs> yeah. that are there at a conference. No, it's two insurance claims adjusters. It's just two. That's all they have. That's all. That's all. That, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's all there is. That's what's happening. Uh, you know, I, I've been I got dragged to a number of shows like that. Where my dad? Where, where my dad? I think I think a few of them were literally in a Holiday Inn with a big ass sign out front. Right. <laughs> Maybe even that Holiday Inn. Yeah, uh, these conferences are like they're like Comic Con for existential dread. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we're like I'd drag a friend along so that we could talk about Voltron or something, and the presence of me and my friend doubled the attendance <laughs> of that concert. But just the little things this movie does. I mean, there's a scene where they go into the flop house. It's one of my favorite things in this movie. Ah, yes. You know what I'm talking about. And while they're walking in, they're heading <laughs> yes. up to the room, and this old guy who's playing cards just yells at Elwood, you got my cheese whiz, boy? And Elwood just reaches under his jacket, pulls out a can of cheese whiz, and tosses it to the guy. <laughs> Not cheese whiz. Cheese in a can. Separate product. Oh, but cheese in a it, can. It, that, that e- works even better. I, that's all because, uh, like, a lot of people still call like call that cheese. It's a, it's a Kleenex factor. It's you the know? Kleenex factor. And yeah. there's no way Elwood is going to buy the expensive one. No way. Uh-uh. <laughs> He's going to no. get the cheap one. Yeah. But it's little things like that. No explanation. So many things happen in this movie with no explanation, but they just feel like you're in a movie where there was a story in a universe that existed before this began and how immediate you get the relationship of these two guys and their relationship to the world, because this is in effect, grand theft auto, the musical. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I I don't know that you get grand theft auto without this movie. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the way these guys break the law is like transcendent. They, it's like it doesn't even occur to them to obey the law. Well, I feel like there's something that we kind of have to talk about because you always kind of have to mention it when you talk about Blues Brothers, and that's the mall scene. The mall, yes. Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, where I think that's where a fair number of of cars get kind of destroyed and stuff yes. like that, and the- and uh, that's like so so. I I can't tell you the number of times I was playing Grand Theft Auto with my friends, and I'm like, I wonder if I can do the Blues Brothers scene here. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that, that's such a big part of it. And I also have, you know, that mall's in Harvey. You know the story? Do you know the story about- The Dixie Square Mall? The Dixie Square Mall, yeah. Okay, so it was a mall that was already shuff- uh, shuttered by the time it had happened. Uh, I know that 
from reading about the movie online and from reading about web reading about that mall on websites. Um, malls were particularly popular growing up where I am. In fact, there are still huge malls in operation today, but there were malls all over the North, you know, like the Northwest suburbs where I'm from because it's cold in the winter and people want to shop where it's not cold. So malls were popular, you know, eventually malls got kind of had their time and died. Um, but this mall had already shuttered by, by 79 and, uh, they filmed the scene in it and apparently, you know, did so much, destruction to it that 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 they just let that mall rot it's like when you see a a movie where there's a dead god yeah it's it's (laughs) husk is just laying there this mall stood empty until it was finally torn down in 2012 right no (laughs) i drove by that mall a number of times not not my parents drove me by that wall. <laughs> not not my grandparents were taking me out for ice cream. It took me in my own car I bought myself, <laughs> drove past that mall un- in Harvey a number of times. And it 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 was because by this point I was living in Bolingbrook, which is like a way farther out suburb. I was at an operation center in LaGrange. Like this is sort of the re- area in which I lived, uh, especially if I was going into the city and didn't want to take uh, the 50, 55 in. Um you know, yeah, and and it's just it's it's it must be like, you know, those ship breaking places in in uh, uh, in India where they're taking across where they're taking uh, taking down like aircraft carriers. It's just this big structure that is just disintegrating <laughs> and dying. And that mall, I I really think, kind of got. And this is where I started reading about that mall. And finding out about it because it was always something you knew about, but that's not the only disintegrating building in that part of Chicago. Sure. It's just the biggest one. Um, but I think that kind of got like urban archaeology and urban exploration started because it was this mall that that was just in the middle of of at that especially later on that area started to economically pick up and improve. But that mall was still there. Mm-hmm. They tore it down in two thousand twelve. Yeah. It's uh, the thing is, when you have a building that big, what can you do with it? Yeah. And except fill it with another mall. Right. And you they have, tried. You try. And I think you look at Blues Brothers. So they took a dead mall and they repopulated it. They filled it with a bunch of businesses. There's like an Oldsmobile dealership and a Toys R Us and a Pier One Imports. And they, they fill this thing up. And you probably get the sense that maybe they thought they could keep some of this stuff. And after they've cleaned it out and shined it up and they think that they could, you know, Maybe bring this mall back to life. Yeah. The Blues Brothers salted the earth of this mall. Yeah. Um, they crash in through the side of, I believe, a JCPenney and crash back out the same way. And in between those two crashes through windows, they destroy practically everything in this mall and the cops help them. Right. <laughs> they fishtail into... Every front window that they can manage, the <laughs> cops manage to follow them. They go through, they plow through every kiosk. What, what I like about it is this is not like a straight where you're going, you need to go from A, turn a couple times and get to B. It's just that they have this joke and they keep returning to the same joke. And the joke is, 
<laughs> they're going to go through this window and then this window and then this window. And they, the longer it goes on, you're like, how the, how do they do this? Like what, how much planning was there? And it keeps happening. It's like, yeah. the, it's like the throwing the bottles at the chicken wire. Yeah. This is like, they've established that they're going to do this gag and it's going to keep going over and over and over again until you're like, are they going to stop this ever? <laughs> but I love is that there's several stops where they crash into something. They have to back out and do a three point turn and go the other way. The cops get stuck on something they've crashed yeah. in the cop flips their car yeah i think there is one point where the three-point turn goes through another storefront <laughs> yeah yeah like the, the, i think it's right before they run into the mu- the the drum shop yeah <laughs> and the entire reason that they're crashing through this mall and avoiding the cops is because elwood ran a red light right and when they pulled him over and checked his license and i wrote this down these are the many crimes of elwood blues he had um, outstanding warrants and a suspended license from 116 unpaid parking tickets and 56 moving violations. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that I mean anybody who lives in a big city knows that that that's entirely possible. Yeah, that's, I, yeah. But just the casual destruction that these guys have, where there's no hesitation, none. I mean, even at the very beginning when they're in the Bluesmobile. Uh, the new Bluesmobile, which is made out of the the recycled corpse of a cop car. Right. And um, Jake is not happy with this. And one of the first things he does is pull out the cigarette lighter to light up a smoke, and it doesn't work. And he just throws the lighter out the window. <laughs> and Elwood doesn't react. Because, no. again, stuff breaks, and they don't care about it. They casually shoplift at points. I think at the end, it looks like Elwood steals a bunch of wiper blades. <laughs> yeah. For no reason. For he no doesn't reason. need them. Yeah. He just, you know, just casually walking around the gas station where they've been waiting and talking with the gas station proprietor for what seems like a couple hours at that point. Yeah. And yeah, he's just he's just stealing stuff. Just stealing is just a thing they do. The same way that to to reassure Jake that the car is actually pretty great, um, he jumps a drawbridge that's been <laughs> <Right>. raised. Yeah, <laughs> I think just to show that yeah, Chicago actually has a drawbridge. I think that's the only re- like like I mean, okay, maybe they wanted to do it, but I mean, I I think the idea of car chases as a gag is fascinating because. How many Herbie movies, you know, or movies that are like Herbie movies have existed where the whole thing is, is look at this wacky situation. We're going to have everyone seen car chases. Something about the idea of that what they're going to make this is they're going to make these car chases funny and it's going to keep getting funnier the further along that it goes. And it doesn't stop being funny at, at any point in time. This is also kind of where the personal connection to this movie for me comes in uh, is, do you know, where where in the context of the movie uh, Elwood got that squad car. Oh, you, you mentioned it. I remember him mentioning as a police auction and what was the place? M- Mount Prospect Police Auction. Mount Prospect Police Auction. Yeah. They're practically giving them away. Practically yeah. giving them away. Uh, my, uh, that, was always, that was a bit weird for me. Uh, the story in my family is obviously most of those uh, cars came from uh, the California Highway Patrol. But that they did want one car or something like that. Some people in my family would tell this story and I don't I don't believe this story, except for the fact that my grandfather, one, was a captain of the Mount Prospect Police Department. What? (laughs) And two, sounds exactly like Dan Aykroyd in this movie. (laughs) I'm not certain if Dan Aykroyd influenced my grandfather. That seems unlikely, given what my grandfather was into. But, uh... (laughs) Uh, which was, I mean, but they, you know, both Dan Aykroyd and my grandfather are both kind of into that dragnetty stuff, so who knows? Um, <laughs> but 
yeah, that was always my connection to it, and 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 so that always made me also made me cringe a little bit, uh, just because of how much trouble I got in with the Mount Prospect Police Department. <laughs> oh, I know, I, I know that the narrative is that uh, if you're uh, if you're in a, a family with a with a police officer, they let you get away with stuff, and that is definitely a narrative that I've seen happen. Mm-hmm. That was definitely not my narrative <laughs> growing up. So this this is a pendulum swing that mostly exists at the farthest ends. Yeah. So either you're getting away with bloody murder, or you have a relative practically harassing and spying on you. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, squads, fo- squad cars following me around, stuff like that. Oh, watch out for that kid. Da, 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 da. Jesus. And then, and then my grandfather, he dies, and I'm one of his pallbearers, and uh, it's five cops and me. <laughs> and then his wake is at uh, is at where the cops eat lunch, you know, in downtown Mount Prospect, and they get there and like. Is this why we we were following you around all this time? He's like, yeah, that's my grandfather. Yeah. Wow. What do you do? <laughs> and at this point, I was like, I do computer stuff. It's like, what? We thought you no. They thought you were like a drug dealer. Yeah, you, no. you were a pimp. Yeah. yeah. You're Mount Prospect's most successful. Like the pimp. part of Mount Prospect I was in is is very much less this movie and a little, and a lot more Ferris Bueller. Uh, gotcha. uh, minus about I don't know, one hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety money off the uh, local properties. Right. You do, you know, do that slight adjustment. Uh, less like Redmond, more like Kent, or not Kent, Auburn. Yeah, Auburn. That that's more where I was at the time. Man, so. I love inside baseball, rural Washington or the suburb Washington references. Bam, bam. But the thing I love is the collection of a rogues gallery that yeah. oh, the yeah. Blues Brothers collect through the course of this movie. One you have. You have the highway patrol. You have practically every cop. By the end of this movie, and I wrote this down, you have a veritable army mm-hmm. of practically all law enforcement in the state of Illinois. <laughs> you have practically every police car and state trooper. You have horse cops. You have boat cops, helicopter cops, SWAT teams, sniper teams, a team of firemen wielding axes, uh, the National Guard with a fucking tank. I mean, the number of extras at the conclusion of this movie is insane. There is an army of cops chasing them. And every time there's even the vaguest sharp corner or the slightest of barriers, the cops lose like three or four cars. Yeah. Every time. One of them squeals, wheels to the side and crashes into something, and at least two cars crash into that car. And the rest of them just has slowly go around them. But this is cartoon Chicago. Yeah. So no one dies. No one dies. Yeah. Uh, So there's a car pileup that has like 30 cop cars in it at one point. And at the end, it's pretty much like cop cars are jumping off of ramp so that you can (laughs) land on the top of this pile. And then the cop, the cop calls out of the wreckage, screams, you son of a bitch, and starts firing indiscriminately in the direction of the fleeing bluesmobile. And all the other cops start shooting, too. It's like that scene in Predator where they're shooting the jungle. (laughs) Right. It is. The cops are like. They fucking lost it by the end of this movie. This is probably the most realistic thing in there. But <laughs> by the end, the cops are just machine gunning barriers and doors that the the Blues Brothers have piled, like filing cabinets and benches behind to get into this county assessor's office. And I love when they get there. This is one of my favorite cameos in the entire movie. The county assessor is Steven Spielberg. Right. Yes. Who's just having lunch in this office in a building that is being occupied by literally hundreds of men with guns. <laughs> and if he looked out the window, he'd see helicopters and tanks and horses. And he's just this little island of calm who just doesn't seem to notice that anything wrong is happening outside of his office. Yeah. 
And he's like, oh, hey, everybody. And they just pick him up by his arms and carry him over to his desk <laughs> and, and, and go through the process of paying him the money to save the orphanage. And I just, that's one of my favorite things in this. But the, so you have the police, but you also have um, Bob from Bob's Country Bunker and the country western band, the good old boys. <laughs> yeah. Bob's Country Bunker is, uh, is also a little bit of one of those things that, that gives one a little bit, like that, that whole storyline right there. Uh, Dan Aykroyd or, or somebody had to have gotten from one of the musicians. Mm-hmm. Like that whole plot point seems like a retelling of something that actually happened because it's just got that. It's specific. I yeah. I don't know what to what 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 uh, what do we do? We'll play Rawhide. Rawhide. Yeah. Okay. Um. And then and then what? Patsy Klein? Was that what? What do they play? I, I forget. It's like a Tammy Wynette song. Tammy, okay. Yeah. That the Blues Brothers are lying to the band. They yeah. they they tell them that they've got a gig. But they don't have a gig, and the first thing they see out of the window is Bob's Country Bunker. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 we're playing here tonight. It's going to be great. Yeah. And they get there, and even the sign outside says, one night only, the good old boys. And he he plays it off like it's a mistake. And they basically steal a gig away from another band. Right. Who just happens to be late. (laughs) That's that's the thing. Of all of the bad guys that are chasing the Blues Brothers, I really think that Bob and the good old boys have the weakest beef with them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Because the good old boys were late to that that gig. Right. As far as I'm concerned, they forfeited that gig. They did. Because they only show up after the place is cleaned out, it's closed, everyone's gone home, they're sweeping up well, all the broken not, glass. It's not cleaned out yet. And that's yeah. one of my favorite things all about the that whole glass. scene. All the broken glass. Is they start doing their set, they start doing their set, and like the bottles are flying, and everybody's really a- angry. And I go... Hey, you guys know Rawhide? All right. Rawhide and A. All right, here we go. And then they start Rawhide. And then the bottles are still flying towards the towards the stage, but they're happy bottles now. Yeah. Like it's it's bottles in joy rather than in anger. That those bottles never stop. They're no. constantly crashing against it. I think there's a close-up of Ackroyd singing, and there are bits of broken glass in the rim of his hat and on his shoulders. Yeah. So it, it is fucking bonkers, but they go in there and they pay, they play all the country songs they know and they kill it. This drunk crowd fucking loves all of the songs that they're playing. Right. I mean, there's one guy who is crying into his beer, a guy with a trucker hat, <laughs> crying into his beer over their rendition of Stand By Your Man. So they are killing it. And even at the end, Bob is happy with them. Right. He's like, that is some of the best music we've ever played in here. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We didn't know that. Was it like the Wreck of 73 or something like that? We didn't know that song. Oh, no, you'll get it the next time you play here. So they're already set up, and it's like, oh, okay, about the money. Okay, well, it's $200, but you guys drank $300 worth of beer. (laughs) And I actually plugged this into the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics website. Oh, wow. Their inflation calculator. Okay. So I wanted to know how much beer we're talking about here and how much they were going to get paid. Right. So $300 in 1980s money equals $1,074.76 in today's $1,000 of the beer? And, and they're not like, they're not knocking back Cavassier or Johnny Walker like this is this is old like the the old style sign is up there they're drinking old style uh which is like rainier but worse yeah uh you know it it, it's it it's the local 
costs, Will. Yeah. How much yeah. does a bottle of beer cost in 1980 in a, in a rural, I think like a dollar? A buck 50. A f- 50 cents or a dollar, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> and there's like nine members of the band. Yeah. And they're throwing it back. So <laughs> I did the math. So $200, what they were going to get paid, is $716.51 in today's money. And that means that they owe Bob $358.25 in today's money. That's the $100. Um, here's the thing, though, as that I don't even think this is probably the closest to a legit beef that any of these people have is Bob being owed $100 worth of beer. Right. But here's the thing. Bob was rescued by these guys. <laughs> There was going to be no band showing up if the Blues Brothers hadn't showed up and swiped this set away. Right. This gig was going to go answered. The bar was going to have an empty stage. And I don't think Bob would have sold nearly as much beer. And a lot of beer was sold based on the number of bottles that are thrown against that chicken wire shield. Well, that's the thing is, is if this is a place of, of constant bottle throughput, if there is not a act to throw the bottles at, one suspects that the bottles might be moving in a different direction. Yeah. So not only was Bob's establishment saved, but uh, but I, Bob's actually actually health and and well being might have been at risk if the Blues Brothers and company hadn't shown up to perform that uh, uh, that evening. And not to get into like the Marxian equation of stolen surplus labor, but. <laughs> The amount you of, don't want to do that with this movie, given how the band is treated. Yeah, the, <laughs> the amount of of value that the Blues Brothers band created for Bob's Country Bunker certainly exceeds the one hundred dollars worth of beer that they owe him. Right. So he is th- whatever bitching and moaning Bob might do for the rest of the movie, including loading up a shotgun and taking off in his truck with the the good old boys to open fire on the Blues Brothers. Despite all of that, he still profited. And of all the people and all the buildings that the Blues Brothers went into, they did not destroy his bar. No. If anything, his customers did. No, no. I mean, they were... The state of the bar seemed to be to have been normalized. Like, you know, apparently they were just in cleaning up. And the Blues Brothers, who largely operate under Bugs Bunny logic. Mm-hmm. So they don't start things, but they will continue it. Right. They don't really seek revenge on on uh, Bob and the uh, the good old boys. No. Until those guys try to kill them so that when they finally get to the big show and they can tell that the good old boys have followed them there, they don't know yet that they're waiting inside all holding axe handles. <laughs> so... Another verisimilitude moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, why I think this is a this is a retelling of a musician story. I don't have to go to my dad for this one. I can go with us. Yeah. Uh, we had the Ask an Atheist, the show we were all a part of once. Had one show where our booze and food bill was bigger than all the money we fought, we raised. That we actually <laughs> we we put on this show to keep Ask an Atheist on the air to keep to keep being on commercial radio because we were in time, which in retrospect wasn't a great decision, but there weren't many options at the time. And so we did we did a show where we, you know, as part of the deal, they people were were donating their time and we were comping their their food and drink. And uh yeah, it was like a matter of hundred and fifty dollars more. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, we were we ended up 150 in the hole. I don't even think I knew that at the time. No, I I didn't tell anybody. Okay. I was like I I just like 
Nah, I'm covering this, I guess. I don't know. That. I guess we're just... We, we, what is the opposite of a fundraiser? <laughs> I, think I, gotta, yeah. I think I have an extra kidney somewhere. But you look at almost everyone else that the Blues Brothers have managed to piss off in this movie, and these guys really... They take it too far. Yeah, you crashed your, your truck into that police cruiser. That I love it that the cops managed to see the Blues Brothers speed by, and that one cop goes, it's that shitbox Dodge. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just like those fucking guys. So these two state troopers probably destroy at least, for just the two of them, at least three cars right. over the course of this movie. Right. These guys are getting a talking to about the destroyed cars Wait, they isn't have. This, isn't the second, uh, the second police officer the guy who played Mr. X on uh, X-Files? You Is remember? He? Yeah, the guy who came and put an X in the window. I haven't He's seen that. I have to admit. He's a member of the Deep State. It's fine. There's a lot of cameos in this movie that are crazy. Tons, yes. Uh, not only Steven Spielberg, but, you know, John Candy's in this movie. Paul Rubens plays a waiter oh, at God. the and this is pre Yeah, this is pre-Peewee Paul Rubens, I think. Or he might have been doing the stage show by this point. Yeah. Um, I love it because he has about four seconds of screen time, and he's hilarious every second yeah. that he's on there. And, and even like, you know the little kid who tries to steal the guitar from Ray Charles' music shop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know who that is? Who's that it? little kid? Who's that? He would later play Argyle in Die Hard. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. As soon as I that's, saw that, I immediately so had awesome. to verify that. I'm like, wait, what? That was Argyle from, from Die Hard. Yeah. Uh, it's fucking crazy. Um, I mean, even the police dispatcher at the end, the old guy who said, it's like, it was that unnecessary violence has now been approved <laughs> against the Blues Brothers? <laughs> Unne- I fucking love that. But that guy, that police dispatcher, that's the guy who um, is the old guy from Angels with Filthy Souls. Oh, yeah. That fake movie inside of Home Holy Alone. Holy cats, yeah. Jeez. You filthy so animal. The, you filthy animal. Yeah, that, 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 this movie is full of that. Well, like, what I didn't hear, what I what I uh, know, well, what I was told, because uh, uh, Warrington pointed it out to me, is that, the, is that the, the, like, when he's getting paroled, the officer who's checking him is Frank Oz. That is yes. Frank Oz. Yes. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea. And when you see the two, um, when they crash through that uh, Toys R Us. Yeah. And I think this is the Frank Oz connection. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy who's um, holding up a Grover toy to the guy <laughs> working there. He says, do you have Miss Piggy? And then he dies. Well, he'd yeah. die if this was a, if this was if a, this was a real movie. Yeah, yeah. If, if, instead of a cartoon. Um, that Those two characters, Grover and Miss Piggy, are both voiced by Frank Oz. Yep. So I think that was probably the connection that they're throwing a little... This movie really feels like, you know, these guys called in every friend they had. It's like, hey, can you do a day on a crazy-ass movie? <laughs> well, it's not only... To, to me, it's not just, you know, if John Landis hadn't have done... Hadn't have done uh, Animal House, right? When right. two years before this one came out, and it was a huge, enormous hit. Like it was, you can say that John Landis and Animal House changed mo- comedy movies for the '80s. Like it set the stage for the '80s. So Landis is like, oh, we're gonna. I just wanted this is. I can do whatever I want, right? Yeah. Just think about how much money to, to justify. Be like, we're bringing in tanks. We're bringing in helicopters. We're bringing in. 400 people to be in this scene alone yeah. like and really just to build a frame around having like musical guests that they all like you yeah know, that dan Aykroyd and john landis and I, like. I think at the time it was said that aside from ray charles most of them hadn't really had a big hit record in a long time right and i have to imagine that 
producers and studios would be like, no, we want top 40 hits. We want the, but they're like, no, these guys are fucking legends. We want Aretha Franklin. We want James Brown. We want Ray Charles. We want John Lee Hooker. And it feels like this is a movie where, you know, every favor has been called in every possible way that they could get this movie exactly done to their own personal wishes and hopes. They got it. And maybe that's the power of just coming off of something like animal. House. Like, like there's, there's a lot we're not talking about here. Like as we're talking about the movie, like we're not really talking about the what this movie is about. Like we could talk about the plot and the funny moments and all the memorable lines that are in this movie, but all of this is secondary to what this movie is about. And this movie is about the music. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I mean, uh, this is a really personal episode for me, I guess, just because I have so many connections to it. But like my great, my great teenage rejection of my family was to not become a musician. You know, no father, I will not play the guitar. <laughs> I will become a system administrator. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's literally what I did. That's like a mirror universe version of that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I did it because I'm stupid. And, um, and so it's, it's hard for me. And, and you know, I, I know we all have, pretty well-developed musical tastes, but none, none of us are musicians and it's hard to talk about. And I'm also not a fan of musicals, but the like Aretha Franklin scene, mm -hmm. you know, performing think in, in the restaurant is one of my favorite musical anythings ever. And I can't tell you why, and I, I can't describe it, but it's just perfect and beautiful. And I, I, I remember it almost outside of the context of the movie. Yeah. It, it has its own existence in my head. It's so clear that Aykroyd and Belushi and John Landis loves this music. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, we're going to give you a full three minutes and give you the stage to show everyone how awesome you are. We want people to see you the way we see you. We want you to, and giving them this spotlight and just saying, we're just going to have a full on Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, uh, James Brown musical. Number. And to, to us, you know, to us in 2022, we like it sounds like booking these people how did they manage to get that that's amazing you know that's amazing casting how did they get these musicians for this well they weren't they they weren't as well known or they weren't as well respected then as they are now mm -hmm. and like this relaunched careers like independent of this movie and that like it reminds me a little of the thing that that tarantino would do which is there is a there's an actor that he loves, whether it's Travolta or Robert Forster mm -hmm. or Pam Greer, where he's like, this person's amazing. I don't understand why everyone doesn't appreciate them the way I appreciate them. Right. So I'm going to give them this, this, this great material and just let them go to town so that everyone can see what I see. And it feels like that happened with a lot of these performers who were getting older. And I'm pretty sure the studio wasn't really clamoring for a bunch of musical numbers with older black artists. Right. And it's like, oh my God, James Brown is great. Oh my God, he can dance. Oh my God, Aretha Franklin is amazing. Yeah. Ray Charles is fucking incredible. Yeah. And he also has daredevil powers in this movie. Right, he's got daredevil <laughs> powers in this movie, and and you got John Lee Hooker. Yeah, not he's not in the plot. Not just there on Maxwell Street. Just it's atmospheric. Yeah, I love that that the the color of the I guess that's loaded. I guess just the the tapestry of the world that Jake and Elwood grew up in, and the world that they frequent is not those you know it's not those uh, suburbs yeah. that Ferris Bueller. This is the city. 
Yeah. This is where the the life and the culture that they that they love and appreciate. And I think it's great that they put up. They also add the Cab Calloway character, who is like the caretaker of the of the uh, orphanage, who becomes a surrogate father to them, and he they dress just like him. Like the yeah. the whole thing was is that two little boys in need of a father found a father figure, and from him they loved this music they love this culture um and that's why they are just like they walk into the diner and there's a little bit of dialogue and then when aretha franklin starts singing they are just dancers in the background it's not it's not dan Aykroyd, and it's you know it's not them trying to one-up them or doing a duet with them it's literally them saying this is your scene jake and elwood are here because this is the part of the story that they're here and they're just dancing they almost evaporate yeah like when yeah. it when it when a musical scene um when a musical scene happens and we're, we're kind of dancing around the very, I think we're all being very careful about the political imagery here, mm-hmm. revisiting it in, in 2020 is that this is two uh, really successful white guys because they have nerdery about this kind of music and happen to be incredibly successful, managed to get this movie made about this thing that they like. And it could be, and possibly is, I don't think I'm, I'm, this could be exploitation. Yeah. This could uh, this could be exploitation. I don't know that I'm a capable judge of that yeah. in this case. But what I am noticing and what I did really notice again watching this with 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 eyes in 2022 is um is when the opportunities for exploitation most appear in this movie where uh, Jake and Elwood would steal the show from the performers or go out in front of the performers and like make the show about them uh they don't. They don't. Like <laughs> yes. they they don't. The most that they do is like John Belushi does some physical acting, or they they're they're uh uh they're da- they're dancers. They're they're it, it's specifically in the Aretha Franklin scene. It's all, like they clearly don't want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Like no, we're dancing for something we don't agree with because we want our musicians back. But this is the part of you know. You have the musical magic at the moment, so now we are dancing for you. Yeah, and it's, and it's understanding that Aretha Franklin is the center of that scene. Yeah. And not trying to steal the spotlight away from her, not making it about yourself, not using her to elevate yourself. Right. And the movie the movie never does that because they know what they have, and they said, no, we have to step back and give give the spotlight, give the camera to this incredible performer and let them do the thing that they're amazing it's, at. It's, you know, very much mirrors the way that you would have seen those type of musical numbers in a movie from the 30s or 40s, where sometimes it was that they that they just had someone like Duke Ellington, who's, you know, because the characters, the, the white people who are the main characters, walk into a nightclub, right? Right. As part of the story. And then there's Duke Ellington and his band. And then there's a number that they do. And then... It switches to the perspective of them enjoying the show, right? And then the thing is over, and then the the main characters move on with the day. It's funny; it's it's very classical in that respect in how it builds out its uh, how it built out its numbers. But the funny thing is the 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 thread that it weaves in between all of those moments is pure silliness. There's no there's no part about it where it, it it wants to take itself seriously, and because when you do get to those musical numbers, all it wants to be is joyful. Mm-hmm. It just even, makes you want to feel even when the, the point of the scene is an argument, it's yeah. still joyful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that one of my favorite that is so hard. Like that is so hard to cap. Like I that there's a, that's part of the reason why that scene is always so important. Is how did they how do you do that? Yeah, like right. I'm seeing it happen, 
And it's not like a special effect. It's not an effect. It's just a scene, and it works, and you don't know why. And it's, yeah. I really like the Cab Calloway number at the end of the movie. And what I love about it is it actually incorporates a lot of the sort of bendable reality, the magical realism of this movie, and takes it into a performance. Because you go from the Blues Brothers haven't showed up. They're having to basically sneak through. It's like they're playing... um, like a Metal Gear Solid game, sneaking past the cops <laughs> to get into the venue yeah. so that they can perform. And um, they don't know what to do. The crowd is getting restless. Um, I believe uh, Matt Guitar Murphy says, yeah, I've always wanted to play before an angry mob before. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Cab Calloway says, hey, you guys know Minnie the Moocher? And he just goes, hit it. The, the curtain comes up and immediately the world is transformed. Yeah. That instead of a bunch of guys in their regular clothes and uh, Cab Calloway in the black outfit that matches what the Blues Brothers wear with the sunglasses, suddenly they're all decked to the nines. Yeah. He's in a white tuxedo. The guys are all behind this sort of art deco, sort of neon backlit set that looks like something out of the golden age of Hollywood. And it's this performance in this magical world that doesn't depict the way the world is, but how it feels. How does this performance feel? Yeah. And it's just this called in response with the audience and it's just Keb Calloway just fucking kills it. And then there's this moment just in between shots where everyone is doing a standing ovation and just snap. They're back in reality and they're wearing their regular clothes and the crowd is still cheering. And I fucking love the way that's done. It, so it seamless. almost outshines and I kind of debate it in my head the apogee of the movie, mm-hmm. which is when the Blues Brothers actually perform. Because uh, it is, it's just the magical. The one, Cab Calloway. Two, um, the the magical uh, uh, effect of it. It almost, it just, that feels like that's the high point of the movie. Yeah, yeah. almost there. And that, ever that that when the Blues Brothers actually show up, you're like, well, okay, yeah, that had to happen. But did you just see what happened? <laughs> yeah, that was fucking incredible. The reality shifted. Yeah. And changed, and it turned into something else, that it felt like you watched something magical. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the question. Are the Blues Brothers great musicians? I I think they're incredibly enthusiastic, and their passion is infectious. Right. I think they're surrounded by amazing musicians. Is that actually Dan Aykroyd playing the harmonica? I believe it is. I think it is. I, I couldn't find any specific information, but it sounds like that really is John Belushi doing vocals, and that really is Dan Aykroyd on a harmonica. Yeah, it's definitely John Belushi. I mean, it's the funny thing about it, when you're comparing, like, oh, there's this amazing moment, and then it kind of it's a it's a bit of a letdown because then when the Blues Brothers actually are there, you're like, oh wait. They're not actually that good of singers. They're fine singers, but they're not really musicians, right? No. Right, but it's also something you've kind of seen before because it's almost a... I mean, the, the song was different, but it it's it, it was a recreation of what they had done on the set of SNL right. when uh, the Blues Brothers was the musical act for, for that episode. I guess this is maybe that we mentioned it, but I mean, it is strange that this was one of the things that was a Saturday Night Live uh skit one of like you know a a handful of movies maybe a dozen movies um i think it's this in wayne's world Mm -hmm. basically and and i'd be willing to say that it's that this is a much more successful musical comedy than uh than wayne's world is a musical comedy even though i think wayne's world probably did more business Mm -hmm. than blues brothers did but i think this is transcend the original sketch in a way that wayne's world never did People always knew in Wayne's World that they're watching a Saturday Night Live movie. I don't think a lot of people really remember 
the original Saturday Night Live performance is nearly as much as they remember this movie. Right. Yeah. That this movie is the thing of the Blues Brothers that people remember. And for a lot of people, they might not even know that the Blues Brothers had an album or that they performed on SNL. So this is the version of those yeah, characters. I, you see, I, I we're, for me, it was always about the movie. Um, that I knew about the movie before the record or uh, or the SNL stuff. You know, the movie was the, my first introduction to this. But apparently this album was already, the, the Al- Blues Brothers album was already out. And oh, they had done this NSL thing, or SNL thing. And, and so this was just capitalizing on that, like the Wayne's World movie did. But yeah, like the, the Blues Brothers were, aren't almost characters they're kind of plot yeah and 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 the 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 movie's really about the musicians yeah and that's that's what i think you get past like you said before the question of cultural appropriation right and i think it manages to sidestep it in a way that ages so much better than it should well, if let's... you were to describe this movie to somebody now, they would probably not expect this to age as well as it did. And again, this is us talking from behind blinders. Yeah. But from my perspective, my white guy perspective, and again, the I use what I like to call white guy math, okay. which is that if there's even the slightest doubt, I round up. Okay. And I think even... Even rounding up, I'm still that still comes across really well. Well, if I can be if I can be the depressing one for a moment, because okay. I'm good at that, is while this movie was not itself like this movie might itself might not have been that exploitive, mm-hmm. it did generate a lot of really stultifying and kind of exploitive blue eyed blues stuff. Mm-hmm. In the Chicago uh, area, oh, and I, I, I had a lot of that, like a lot of white guy blues, a lot of white guy blues, blue eyed blues is what what is what a lot of people call it, and and you know, there's literally a place in Chicago called uh, House of Blues, and it's just that, and and wait, is that the genesis of the House of Blues franchise? Yeah. oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it was the first one. I think it was the first one, but I, I, I don't care about it so much. I can't actually answer that question right. for you, right. but. Um, the, the suburban white guy dad blues, oh. uh, it was definitely something that I experienced a lot, uh, being around musicians as a kid and it always kind of set me on it. It, 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 something, I don't know. It was, it was my dad. Uh, it I, means I well, but it misses the point. I don't want to talk for somebody uh, on somebody else's behalf, yeah. especially since I think he's going to hear this. Um, <laughs> But I always felt like he kind of kept a couple steps back from that and uh, uh, and also was not that comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing what I know about my dad now, I'm certain that was the case and sort of kept me out of that. But there was always like the guy with a, with with the car dealership who wants to go on stage and do a song. And because he kind of paid for this gig, we kind of have to do it. And guess what song he wants to do? <laughs> Sweet Home Chicago? Of course he wants to do Sweet Home Chicago. Mm-hmm. If I ever hear that song ever again. <laughs> I, I if I could never hear that song again, I'd be okay. There was know? probably a there was probably a period of like 30 years where it was the the karaoke, the Ur karaoke song yeah. for for uh for Chicago, I'll bet. Yeah. For guys of a certain age. Um and and so like it's it it's how it goes with any sort of fandom. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd. Once the white guys and discover John it. John Belushi. Uh, well, not just once the white guys discover it, but in this case, there's the, the intermediate stage mm-hmm. where uh, nerds 
with access to funding do something about something they like and it enables so much and white guy nerds in this case and it just it it, it allows the enablement of exploitation yeah it it does the exact opposite of what the the musical numbers in this movie did which is it pulls the spotlight away from black artists right rather than highlights them uses i mean a lot of ways you could say that dan Aykroyd and and john belushi and john landis use the clout they had to draw attention to black artists and that the unfortunate result of that is the exact opposite. Right. Is highlighting um, people that are that are appropriating that culture because they have access to money to be able to buy the gigs and taking attention away from talented voices in the black community that should be getting an audience but aren't because the white guy with a car dealership um, is able to throw a bunch of money to the owner of a club. Right. And that's depressing as shit. <laughs> yeah, and that is mission def- accomplished, Sam. What's that? Mission accomplished. Yeah, you said you came onto the show to say the depressing things. Well, yeah, I, you know that's that was something that happens, and and you kind of have to weigh that against the constantly the fact that this movie did uh, relaunch some careers, and then you got to weigh that against like you do like I do research for this movie, uh, so that I can talk to you about it, and the fact that this movie wasn't going to air. Or wasn't going to get uh, wasn't going to be playing a lot of theaters in 1980 because the owner of a lot of theaters out in this direction didn't want black people going into white neighborhoods to watch this movie. That's right. Ugh. Yeah, that's right. I read that. That is so fucking awful. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Well, I hope the Blues Brothers drive through his theater. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and, and then, and then, because I did research about this movie, the amazing amount of cocaine that was done to make yes. this movie happen. Oh my god. A this ch- is. When people say coke-fueled, they're talking about this. Yeah, that's a 40% of it was probably to John Belushi. <laughs> if you want to talk about the guy who didn't didn't fade away but burned out Kurgan style, we're talking <laughs> we're talking John Belushi. He, he's sort of he is the the avatar of of the uh, uh, of the burnout performer, isn't he? Oh my yeah. god. So we have to talk about one thing before we wrap this conversation up and okay. it's it's a crime on this podcast that we haven't gotten this far without talking about the neo-Nazi group. <laughs> because yes. I was saving it. I was saving oh. it. These fucking assholes are so... It is so delightful to one... <laughs> what, I'm nostalgic for a time where a bunch of, of random people can show up at a Nazi march and scream obscenities and, and flash the finger at a bunch of fucking Nazi assholes. Um, but did you notice the name of the organization that they represent? Uh, it's yes. Yeah. The American Socialist White People's Party, <laughs> which seems pretty close to what? Just to asswipe. Yeah, oh, asswipe. <laughs> and I, I fucking love it. So the, the, the Nazis show up <laughs> probably about halfway into the movie. And the Blues Brothers are, are stuck in this this line of traffic because the those bums are marching today because they won their court case. And the fucking Nazis are screaming and chanting about, you know, we pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler, the immortal <laughs> leader of our race. <laughs> and the swastika calls to you, whitey. And the Blues Brothers just 
step on the gas towards these motherfuckers <laughs> and send them screaming into the off the bridge that they're marching on and blocking into the river. And I just love everyone running to the edge of that bridge and cheering. I hate Illinois. <laughs> yes. I hate Illinois. Not, but yeah, these... the thing is that like this was a, a direct reference to stuff that was happening in the Chicago area in the 80s, and it actually continued into the 90s, where the cop says, talks to, to one of the protesters, yeah, they got their court case, so they have a right to, uh, they, they have a right to, to protest here. It's a free speech. Yeah, it's, yeah every, what bums? Yeah, what, what bums? That was a thing that was happening in Chicago. The fucking Nazi party. Fucking Nazi parties. <laughs> is, that, is that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the, uh, the white supremacists in in the Chicagoland area and in the Midwest would want to have their thing and 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 protest and be Nazis in one place, and they would get denied. They they wouldn't be able to get a park permit, and they'd take them to court, and and the Nazis would win. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people hailed this as a as a victory for free speech, which I, I used to be one of those. I people. guess, but like. One of these events was was in a town in in Chicago called Skokie. It's a it's an it's a no, like clearly a northern. There's suburb. a good there's a good TV movie about that. Uh, oh, is starring there? Eli Wallach? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Eli Wallach and I believe it was Danny Kaye's final feature film, final long form film. Anyways, um, yeah, yeah. exactly about that. I have I have a lot of friends in Skokie. Skokie is a yeah. is a. Uh, and most of them were Jewish. Skokie yeah. is a huge population of Jewish people, and and. And when I was growing up in 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 the eighties and nineties with the BBS scene, uh, you know, uh, uh, I made a lot of friends in the in there and Niles sort of in that area, and and then where do, where do the white supremacists wanna wanna protest and march around and talk about how great Hitler was? Fucking Skokie. Yeah, that's not an accident. That's not an accident. That's clearly not an accident. It's definitely and an so, act of intimidation. Yeah, and 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 so uh, in my mind, you know, I, I love free speech and all all that stuff but when free speech is a call for genocide yeah it doesn't become it's not free speech yeah that's the thing is that these are not like people who want to argue with you against tax policy they want to argue with you about the relative humanity of various groups of people right and their entire purpose there is to march through and make you feel afraid to say something and the, and if you don't don't chase them out with rocks and fists and screams. They will come back with greater numbers. And like my whole life and, and all the time I was doing Ask an Atheist, you know, people would talk about free speech and how it was important to, you know, that, that we're a country where you're allowed to say what you want. Maybe not without, you know, maybe not without consequence, but you were allowed to say what you want. And in the back of my head, and sometimes not just the back of my head, my response was always, Fucking Nazis. What about Skokie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The yeah. fuck was that? Yeah. And I, I, can, I can speak to this. I was on the other side of this. We have had this conversation in different yeah. different iterations. Yeah. And the me of of 10 years ago would have had a big argument with you about, oh, well, you know, you got to understand. And if, if the Nazis are allowed to do it, it's like, no, well, one, no, no. Yeah. Because you know what happens? You know who enforces those laws? The fucking cops. And you know who the, the if you pass a bunch of rules against protesting like that, you know who they're not going to use those laws against? The fucking Nazis. They're yeah. going to use them against black community groups and civil rights leaders and anti-war groups and leftist groups. May I present to you... 
Portland. Yeah. 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 Portland yep. is a great example of that right now. You yep. can you can pass all those laws yourself, but the person who gets to decide how to enforce them is the fucking cops. And usually, I imagine when it comes time to go undercover in a Nazi group, a lot of cops raise their hands because it's probably the easiest fucking cover to keep. Yeah. And that it's the same bullshit every time. Again, when you see a bunch of Nazis marching somewhere, um, what do the cops show up? They show up in their, their regular uniforms, and there's like 10 of them. Their backs are to the Nazis because they're protecting the Nazis against the counter-protesters. What happens when a bunch of environmental activists or activists um, uh, trying to, to protest the overturning of Roe v. Wade or leftist groups or anti-war groups or civil rights groups protesting a cop murdering an unarmed black person? What happens when, when those people show up to protest? The cops show up like in numbers of hundreds with a fucking tank and uh, batons on shields. Batons. They dress like fucking like fucking Judge Dredd. So no, these 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 are not civil rights that the Nazis are implementing here. This is a hate group that is in an act of political intimidation against a community. Yeah, and you have to respond to these guys not with oh we're going to beat them in the marketplace of ideas. See, the reason I get so pissed about this shit is I'm talking to a younger version of myself right now. <laughs> I don't want to... you have to defeat these guys in a way, and this is how you deal with bullies. You defeat with them in a way that makes what they're doing not fucking fun and costly. See, what I'm trying to do right now is to not wallow in this apparent victory okay. that I've experienced <laughs> that you changed uh, me. Yeah, well, I don't think I did. You're, you're like fucking Palpatine. I, I think the world changed. And you noticed yeah. I, yeah. is what it is. I yeah. don't, I do not take credit for this. The but... things I get the angriest about are things that I hate about my past self. Yeah, mm. no, I'm the same, much the same. So, uh, I, so... I mean, I even had a moment where I'm like, yeah, I'd really like them to die in a fire, but isn't that is that really what we're about? And Would then I, you know, I'd be just as bad as no, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> Until you commit genocide, yeah, then you can't say no, you're as bad I, as the Nazis. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to kill them. Uh, I, you know, like, dot dot dot. I, yeah. In a multiplayer game. In a multiplayer game. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, it's it's uh, yeah. It, it, that whole thing. And one of the interesting things about this movie is that it's a movie with black performers and Nazis, and the black performers do not have to interface with the Nazis at all. Mm -hmm. That is not what this like. The Nazis are kept away. There's a layer between them and the joyful parts of this movie. Yeah, this isn't I, them rescuing black people from no. from the fucking Nazis. Yeah, the Nazis is a completely separate thing than the rest of the movie. Yeah, the Nazis want to kill them because they drove the Nazis off a bridge while they were protesting like assholes. Right, and and that leads to the weirdest part. Yes. This is probably the most cartoonish element in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. So the Nazis finally take chase because they've been waiting yeah. for the uh, the police dispatch to basically tell them where the Blues Brothers are. And they take off in their Ford Pinto and their station wagon <laughs> with a white power bumper sticker Wagner on it. Wagner and station wagons yes. made a real impression on me when I was watching this movie. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is the first time I've seen this movie not while I was in Chicago. This is, oh, this wow. is the first time I've seen it. I had not seen it in like 16 or 17. Firing at them with a Luger pistol. With a Luger, yeah. Because <laughs> these guys, if nothing else, they are dedicated to the bit. Oh, I said Mauser. No, it is it is definitely a Luger. Uh, why do I care about this? Anyway. <laughs> um, you know, only the only person that cares about these distinctions is a fucking Nazi. It's a Nazi, I know. Yeah. It's like, are you mentioned the wrong kind of German handgun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. I don't, It's like the same people. Uh, I'm not even going to get into that. But um, it's... That's what I love. Is you just I, watch... whatever you were about to say. I think I agree. So okay. let's, let's just go there. <laughs> okay. right. But 
these guys get fucking destroyed, and it yeah. feels so good. At one point, they are chasing the Blues Brothers down. The, they're, they're just crashing through barrier after barrier, telling them that the freeway overpass that they're on is going to come to a dead end. <laughs> the Blues Brothers hit the brakes, and they're like dangling cartoon yeah. style. Their car is halfway yeah. off this thing. They throw it into reverse, back up so hard that their car flips, and it cuts to a shot of the, that police car having been launched from a catapult <laughs> and then they flip over land safely and drive away the nazis drive off the overpass and suddenly <laughs> it's footage of a car that has been dropped from a plane no they hit they hit an updraft <laughs> they're yeah. floating yeah. in the air they fly they're, over a building they're like 3000 <laughs> feet in the air at at I, I got to admit, I, I'm watching this and they're flying off. I was like, "Is that the Dan Ryan? This is like the is end that the of Bishop Ford? Is that the is, is that the Skyway? What is it? No, it's, it's, it's in Milwaukee. End. That oh, shot wow. is in Milwaukee. That's awesome. It's like at the it's like a Nazi version of the end of Greece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then they just start dropping. Yeah. And when they hit the ground, they make this giant hole like Wiley e. Coyote, and then the other Nazi car falls in it. <laughs> <laughs> It's so fucking wonderful. It is the weirdest part. It, it, and it's so, yeah. And this is neither here nor there, but the head Nazi looks a lot like Senator Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess with that, let's ask the big question to finish this conversation off. Is Blues Brothers worth your time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the question, one of the questions that I was asking myself was, is this a movie that you could make now? And I think the answer is no, um, for good reasons and bad, is that uh, it is for the good reason is you don't you don't need white guys presenting black performers anymore. You no. can actually have black performers have front stage stage the whole time and it works. Uh, the other side is what you the bad side is what you and I were talking about is that somebody would try to normalize the Nazis. And well, that was not something that was quite done in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and so this movie couldn't be made now, and it shouldn't be made. It was it was an interesting slice of a time, and I think ultimately the thing that I walked away with watching it after so many years is uh, just is is a, it's a slice of two guys who work together who were really into something like like this is this movie is fandom. This movie is a fandom of two people. And they did the best they could with what they did. And if you see it in that micro context and you understand you understand that and like maybe not worry about the political implications so much, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, if you're a philosopher or have any sociological bents, you're going to be chewing on it for a minute. And I don't know the answer to that question. But is it is it a good movie to watch? Yeah, it really stood out. I was surprised. I was surprised at how not bored I was Yeah, watching it again. It's very funny. It's very joy. We've said it. It's very joyful. It is fun to watch. It, um, you you get the uh, you know if you've grown up in the eighties, you knew that there was Blues Brothers was probably at the head of a wave of like, um, because I think Walter Hill did a movie a couple years later about with Ralph Macchio in it about called Crossroads about blues guitarists and stuff. Yeah. There's this whole sort of crested wave of being like, oh, no, we're we are interested in blues again. And blues is and blues had that even Huey Lewis in the news. Right. Is like we had this wave where it was like, this is cool again. And it pretty much ebbed before the 90s were, were kind of over. But if you just want to like mainline it, if you just want an experience where you're like, I don't really know, you know, 
I st- I've heard Stevie Ray Vaughan before. I don't know. I don't know really know what it's like to have it and put it in front of someone for the first time of sort of thinking about like who this is a kind of music. I think you could get people to fall in love with it. And I think that that's something powerful about that. Some people would say this was beautiful. The the music was exciting. It made me, you know, it made my my toe tap. It made my knee jump, you know. And I and I liked everything that I all the people that made music, I liked what I what they what they were doing. And that's awesome. That doesn't happen very often. And I'm really glad they left it at one movie. Yeah. 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 Wait a minute. <laughs> Nothing ever happened ever again. Yeah. Not certainly not in 1998. No. Wait a minute. But I, I got to say, fuck yes to this movie worth your time, because this movie is, it feels like a Russian nesting doll of love letters to various <laughs> specific things. It's like a passion project inside of a passion project inside of a passion project. And the enthusiasm is so pure. And you talked about the sort of political connotations, their willingness to share the stage instead of being the the white guy experts on everything, the savior. They're not rescuing um, the musicians from the Nazis. They're saying that again. They um, said the we didn't talk about this. The musicians are in jail. Yeah. Yes. And the musicians were never a part of this. I just, they're in jail. Yes. Oh, I, that, that's so fucking weird because they do end up in fucking prison yeah. at the end. It's fucking insane. But the musicians did nothing wrong. Hashtag free the Blues Brothers Band. It's such a lightning in the bottle. The question of could they make this today? Well, the answer is no, because you could only make it at this specific time. Yeah. It was a movie in 1980 where this music was waiting to be rediscovered by an audience that had never seen it before. And these artists were still there, still largely in their prime, able to perform and project and and dance and sing in the way that they did in their prime and gain entirely new fans to to rejuvenate careers in a way that I I can't see I I, I just this movie shouldn't work. No. Everything about this movie shouldn't work. This is the um this is that chili chutney sandwich from that episode of Red Dwarf. <laughs> that an R-rated comedy starring two Saturday Night Live characters that also includes uh, basically the Mount Rushmore of R&B and blues. But it's also a car chase movie with incredible, incredible destructive mayhem. All of those things together shouldn't work. But it does. And it doesn't feel like this movie that's constantly stopping and going. It doesn't feel like it has an identity crisis. And I guess the question of it uh, dating itself is I always kind of have in the back of my head to something that I loved when I was young, because I think this is a movie that's largely gone down the memory hole, Mm -hmm. that it was definitely a part of people in our generation's pop culture appetite. Yeah, well, if you saw Dan Aykroyd come back for SNL... They would, you know, they would do they would do the, the Blues Brothers bit. He, yeah. They were keeping it alive. But I mean, you, for people in our age bracket, we all grew up with this movie. But I don't think people younger than us did. And I think it's been sort of forgotten. So whenever I see a movie like that, especially for this show, I always have that sort of voice in the back of my head saying, how would a 20-year-old react to this movie? I showed it to them. Right. And I always kind of want to know. And I never, I'm never going to pretend that I understand but I think this movie comes out fairly unscathed. I think that there definitely are things that we wouldn't do today. Mm-hmm. Like, again, the black musicians would be the main characters of the movie. Right. If you did it today. But I think this movie ages remarkably well versus how you would assume it would. 
Yeah. I think it's still funny. I think the the practical car crashes, especially in a world where car crashes today are almost entirely CGI. Yeah. Um, there's an undignified way that a practical object moves in real life, especially when a car crashes. It just kind of looks a little sad. Well, and I think also it, this era of cars, we're talking like, uh, you know, the, they, they weren't using new cars on the set. They were using, um, like pre-cat cars. These are, uh, yeah. These are like boxy sedans. Yeah. These, these are, what do they call the era where the cars are terrible? Uh, it's um, the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> no, but like, all right, my brain is blanking on it. Uh, but like, this is they're they're getting rid of old cars, and these cars like like Carrie Fisher, I think, is driving an Eldorado or something like that, and it's beat to shit. It's beat to shit, and it, but it's a car that has tectonic plates. Yeah, like it's not cars today. They move, and it's just like one thing moving. These cars, they moved around. They had flex as they were trundling down the highway. These things cornered like parade floats, and yeah, <laughs> yes. and, now, and now they're tossing them, tossing them into the air and making them do backflips. And this car crashes. Don't look like this in TV shows anymore. They don't look this. It's a cartoon, but it still feels kind of. It's like I. I feel like there's like a like an anthropomorphic anthropomorphic car out there who would feel sad about this movie. <laughs> oh, this movie is a fucking bloodbath of your car. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even Django didn't have as many deaths on screen oh, yeah. oh, if cars were people. <laughs> The cars in this, if you showed it to the cars from cars, <laughs> this is like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> this is the end of Commando. I mean, <sighs> so yeah, I just say this movie's fucking amazing. And I, I think young people should give it a try. I agree. Understand that they're, the world has changed, but. This movie holds up really well. Yeah, you still try to run over Nazis. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that never gets old. Um, so, uh, Mr. Sam Mulvey, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Um, if people want to learn more about you and uh, KTQA 95.3 FM, where can they look? Well, KTQA.org is the place to go. Uh, we stream live. Like I said, these days, I got to admit to y'all, um, I know there's, there's a lot of, there might be a couple people who are listening to this, Sam's alive! Yeah, oh God, yeah! I am working on my, my, I tried doing a return to air a few months ago. Um, it didn't work out very well because I don't really have a staff at Ask an Atheist anymore. It's our old bullpen is now down to like two people and I, I, I need more people and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get back on the air. Uh, I, I feel like I got a few more things to say before I'm out, but KTQA.org is where, where you're going to find out about me and what I'm up to. I'm not really behind the mic a whole lot right now, but that is about to change whoa, pretty substantially whoa, whoa. over the next year. I have four projects in, on the fire right now. Nice. Uh, and but I right now at KTQA, we're kind of in a crisis mode. We need to we need to uh, uh, paint the tower. We're about and by the time this airs, this will be public. We're about to lose our studio, the studio that I spent about a year building. Uh, we're losing that space, and we're going to have to move. Oh, and my God. Before I can return to air, I have to solve these problems because it's more than just me riding on it now. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm supporting a, a whole bunch of folks uh, who, who need to be on the air, whose voices need to be heard. So if you're interested in that, you want to help out, or you just want to listen, KTQA uh, LP 95.3 FM. You can find us at KTQA.org. And it's sort of appropriate that this is on for the Blues Brothers trying to raise money. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a donation buddy on, yeah, button on the there KTQA is. website, KTQA. Um, please go donate. If just the people who listen to this show gave five bucks a piece, 
we could help out Sam tremendously, and it's well, well-earned. Sam does a lot of work. The show that we're listening to right now, this show would not be possible without the support that Sam gives us. And so Pam, Sam has given us amazing support Absolutely. and mentorship over the years, and this show would not exist without his contributions. And wet, sloppy kisses. <laughs> uh, lots of those. So Thanks, Sam. <laughs> thank you so much, Sam. Yeah. Thank you. I, and, I had a great time. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. Special thank you to Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Nidecker, Zuri Russell, Steel Wolf, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kaylin, Matt Weber, and Hans Twight. Thank you, everybody. If you want to become an episode sponsor, please, 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 we welcome you. Go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. Or click the big green button on RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Otherwise, we will see you folks next month. Radio Versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Get that car's license plate number. We're gonna kill that son of a bitch.